Welcome back, my friends. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. I am so glad that you're here, even if it's just, you know, like virtual. But I'm really glad that you guys are tuning in for the podcast once again. Uh, Happy, what's the right way to put it? Like spooky season? Spooky season's officially started, right? It's October. Everybody's getting into the Halloween spirit. I'm sure you all will have great costumes out there. I'm really excited about mine. Uh, maybe I'll share it with you all on the podcast, social media pages uh, on Halloween. But uh, speaking of Halloween, that will this year Halloween falls on a Monday, which, as you all know, is when I usually post uh, episodes for the week. And so I've got a idea for our Halloween episode that I think that you all are going to like. Uh, we'll be hearing from some familiar friends who have been on the podcast before, and hopefully it'll be a good time. So stay tuned for that. Don't miss the Halloween episode this year. I think you'll really enjoy it. Also, it's looking like that the Halloween episode will be the season three finale for this season of Appalachian Firesides. Uh, I've been, let's see, I think I started season three back in June, I think, June or July, and, you know, we've posted, by the time the season will wrap up, I think like 15 or 16 episodes we'll have posted or uh, something to that effect. But with Thanksgiving coming up in November uh, and after I come back uh, to school from Thanksgiving break, I'll be getting ready to take my finals. And then December with the winter holidays, Christmas and so forth, and then January with the new year. I think that ending the season on our Halloween episode will... Um, make the most sense for us. We've gotten you know a lot of material out. I remember season one, I only posted like five episodes, maybe four or five, and then season two, I think, was uh, six or seven. And by the time this season wraps up, we'll have posted, like I said, 14 or uh, 15 or 16 episodes, actually. So that's a pretty good uh, change. It's a pretty good uh, amount of growth between seasons. So I think that's a, a good place to uh, wrap up this season and then pick up in January with season four. Uh, it's so hard to believe that we're already to this point. Uh, I've gotten a lot of great feedback from you all on the podcast, and uh, for everybody out there who has been supporting the podcast in any way, shape, or form, whether it's listening, whether it's following on social media and interacting, whether it's just a, a word of encouragement, uh, I appreciate each and every one of you uh, so much, more than I could express in words. You all are the reason that I'm doing this, and I have enjoyed it. I think it's it's a lot of fun for me to do, and hopefully it's fun for you all to listen to, and I, I really like the community that we've built here. So uh, thank you all so much for continuing to, to tune in, to uh, follow on social media, to support in whatever way that you do. Uh, I can't thank you enough. And so I hope that you've enjoyed this season, and I think that you'll enjoy these last few episodes that we have coming up. And I think that you'll enjoy the direction that we go in Season 4. We'll be talking to some new friends, maybe talking to some old friends as well. So be sure to tune in for Season 4. I'll have more information on when specifically that will be starting up as we get closer to the new year. But nonetheless, stay tuned. And you know, if you have some friends that you think may be interested in the podcast, then let them know that Season 3 is about to wrap up at the end of October. So between October and... Uh, or excuse me between November and uh, early mid-January, plenty of time to get caught up on all of the episodes that I've put out so far. Uh, if you know anybody who might be interested in listening to those, or maybe you can recommend your favorite episodes or, or what have you, just um, be sure to tune in for our fourth season come January. So we are a little less than a month away from Election Day here in the United States with the midterm elections coming up. 
And seeing as how uh, we will be going to the polls, a lot of us will be going to the polls very soon, I, I thought it would be a good idea to reach out to a few political candidates who are running in Appalachia. I was able to have some great conversations with uh, two candidates in particular, and we're going to be hearing from one of those candidates today. So this week, I'm honored to be joined on the podcast by Connor Hallbleib, who is running for uh, United States Congress in Kentucky's 5th Congressional District, which is my district, by the way, and for a lot of you all out there listening, I know that it's your district as well. Connor is running as a Democrat in that race, and he and I were able to sit down and have a great conversation getting to know each other and I talked to Connor about what the main issues are for his campaign. And I will let him explain in further detail in the interview, but as you'll hear him say, it boils down to three main things. Everybody deserves health care free at the point of service, where you don't have to worry about paying a, an outrageous premium or copay or deductible to have the quality health care that you deserve as a human being. Uh, his campaign also focuses on access to clean drinking water uh, with all that's been going on in Jackson, Mississippi, and all that's been going on in uh, communities across eastern Kentucky that have struggled for so long to have access to clean drinking water. That is a very important issue, and sadly, in the year 2022, it is an issue. It is an issue that people uh, do not have access to clean drinking water with uh, the kind of technological advances we've made, with the kind of wealth that we have in this country. Nobody should be going without clean drinking water. So Connor and I talk about that as well and, and how we feel that the federal government or any government, should respond to this issue. And finally, the third part of Connor's campaign, which he talks about, is the right to a dignified job. Uh, we get into how, as we look to transition nationally towards a cleaner economy, how that will impact communities in eastern Kentucky that continue to rely on fossil fuel jobs as the main source of employment in these areas. We talk about how uh, we can have good economic policy and good conservation and environmental policy at the same time. Those don't have to be separated. And we talk about how when we pursue a cleaner environmental policy and a cleaner economy, we cannot and we must not forget the folks who depend on coal for their jobs, who depend on fossil fuels for their jobs. We have to make sure that before anybody else, those folks are taken care of and that they have jobs waiting for them that are just as good, if not better, than the ones that they have right now. So Connor and I get into much more detail on all of these things over the course of the interview. I hope that you guys uh, enjoy it. Uh, I'll have links in the show notes to Connor's campaign website if you'd like to learn a little bit more about him and his campaign. And if you're a Kentucky voter, I'll have a link to the uh, Secretary of State's website that has all the information that you need on uh, voter registration, uh, your polling place to go to on Election Day, how to request an absentee ballot. Uh, all of that will be available at that link in the show notes. So I hope that you all enjoy this week's episode. And without further delay, let's get into it. All right, Connor, thank you so much again for uh, joining me today. I just want to jump right into it and give you the floor to introduce yourself to the folks who are listening, maybe talk about your connections to Eastern Kentucky and the 5th District where you're running for Congress, uh, and then we can get into how uh, you're running your campaign and the values and the the work that you hope to do for the folks in Eastern Kentucky uh, in Washington. So uh, if you'd like, go right ahead. The floor is yours. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. So my name is Connor Hallbleib. That last name is Hall, like a hallway, Bleib, like tribe. 
And uh, I tell people all the time, you don't have to know how to pronounce it. You just have to see it on the ballot. That's right. the only thing I care about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I am uh, I'm currently running for U.S. Congress for the Kentucky 5th Congressional District. Uh, my opponent is Hal Rogers. We can talk about him. That's the only time I'm going to say his name right. uh, d- during this. But um, So that is my opponent. Uh, I uh, am originally born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky. My mother's family is all from Owsley County. And so uh, her father's from there, her uncles and everything. We've been down there a lot. And uh, that's kind of where my direct connection to Eastern Kentucky comes from. Uh, I recently graduated from the University of Louisville Law School, and um, I have my own ideas. We can talk about them, about how I feel Eastern Kentucky and the nation as a whole should go, uh, both policies and ideologically. And uh, I decided I'm going to throw my hat into the ring and because I believe, believe in myself and believe in my ideas. So that's that's kind of why I took on this challenge and why I continue to run. Excellent. So uh, if you'd like, what are some of the key hallmark policies of your your campaign for Congress? And and how do you think that those policies can best improve the lives of folks in eastern Kentucky? Well, I like to keep things very, um, very simple, but big. And that's kind of how uh, I picture any sort of congressional candidate or, you know, congressperson should should behave. And so my simple but big ideas are um, Medicare for all. I believe that everyone uh, in everyone's family always deserves health care, never deserves to have their health care taken away from them for any reason, and always have the stability of knowing that them and their family are covered. The second big thing I talk about is uh, when it comes to the environment specifically is uh, water access. As you know, there are places in Eastern Kentucky that still don't have access to to clean drinking water. And I don't think that that's appropriate in 2022. Uh, And we just saw in Jackson, Mississippi, that they're experiencing uh, something like this and it's, it's horrendous. So that's kind of my, my second big thing is that the the federal government, I think should take responsibility for some of these things and make sure no one has uh, dirty water coming out of their Right. And the third thing is, is, uh, you know, if we talk a lot about jobs in Eastern Kentucky and jobs in rural areas, if the private, uh, if the private sector can't can't fulfill that responsibility, then I believe it's up to the public sector to make sure that there are good, well-paying jobs for people to have honor in and respect in and, and uh, not to just scrape by and um, so those are kind of my three big platforms, Medicare for all, clean water, and and good good paying jobs in the region. Well, I, th- I uh, wholeheartedly agree with you on all three of those points that you just raised, uh, specifically regarding health care. You know, that that's an issue uh, when you talk to folks in, in our region, regardless of what their politics are, regardless of what party they're with, uh, there's a consensus, a mainstream consensus that health care is either inaccessible or unaffordable. And that is particularly hard felt in rural areas where, you know, certainly folks uh, may may not be able to afford the kind of quality health care that they deserve as human beings. But more, moreover, uh, a lot of them are not able to get to a uh, medical facility in time enough to be treated. And, you know, I have spoken to folks who um, are really worried about that lack of transportation uh, to a place that can service their medical needs. And so... Uh, that on top of the issue of it being almost unaffordable for a lot of folks uh, is is a really important issue. And I, I, I'm glad to hear that that is one of your main uh, concerns as a candidate. Um, so if you could, some specifics of your idea of Medicare for All. I know that there's a, 
Uh, I don't think it's as, as controversial a topic as it's often portrayed to be, but I know that there are some disagreements about specifically what can be done to improve access to healthcare and quality of healthcare for folks in underserved areas like Eastern Kentucky. Do you have any idea of some specific uh, points in that program of Medicare for All that you think could be really beneficial to Eastern Kentucky? Right. So I think that the 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 so the main kind of structure of any Medicare for All system is um, is free at the point of service. So right. when you need access uh, right then and there, uh, you're not you're not expected to to shell out of your wallet right then and there because that because no one knows when they're going to get sick. Right. Uh, no one plans on it. So that I think that is is kind of the main skeletal formation of a Medicare for All system, specifically for a place like Eastern Kentucky or any rural. Um, you know, rural community, I think it's both um, the kind of standard general practitioners, uh, we need a lot more of them, and then also just uh, just rural hospitals and making rural hospitals a, a priority. Uh, I've, I've, uh, I've posted recently about a huge closing of rural hospitals in the past decade. Yeah. But, um, you know, as you said, that if someone has an emergency and they, they can't get to um, to an emergency room quick enough because of where they live, that that's a problem. And I think one of the solutions is to make sure that there's going to be less emergencies because people can go to a general practitioner. It's, right. it's easier to open a general, you know, a practitioner's office uh, where people can go and get, you know, preventative treatment, things like that. And then also open more specialized rural hospitals, uh, which may take a little more time and effort, but they're not going to be as swamped because people aren't going to necessarily need that emergency service as much because they're get you know, uh, regular, uh, regular treatment, regular updates. So I think that those kind of three aspects of free at the point of service, uh, you know, regular treatment, and then for emergency treatment, make sure that rural hospitals have the capability to uh, to perform that. I think those three could help uh, the community of Eastern Kentucky. Absolutely. And just to revisit this point, you know, uh, when this idea of uh, free medical care first started to it's it's been around for a while when you when you look back through the debates that we've had over the course of of our history in the United States. But, you know, it's kind of modern resurgence as an idea. It was uh, thought of and kind of portrayed as being so uh, outside of the realm of possibility. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that we, the United States, are the only industrialized country in the world without a system of free health care, as you just described it. And, you know, particularly for underserved regions like Eastern Kentucky, it can be um, not just a game changer for how folks, you know, plan to go about their their lives so that they don't have to worry about an extra charge for a medical service kind of, you know, hampering whether or not they'll be able to pay some other bill or put food on the table. But uh, for many people, it will be a literal lifesaver to have that system of, of free health care. So I, I'm in complete agreement with you that we need a system like that uh, in the United States, but specifically in in Eastern Kentucky. Um, and I, I'd like to talk about another aspect of this and the need for real reform in uh, prescription drug pricing. Now, Eastern Kentucky, according to a report from WKYT that I saw from last year, uh, folks in Eastern Kentucky are at a 41% higher risk of developing diabetes. You know, I have several family members and close friends who who suffer from that condition. And, you know, it's like we were saying across the board, regardless of what someone's politics is, the consensus is that uh, insulin is just so outrageously uh, priced that many people have to ration it and that can, you know, endanger them of not getting the correct amount of dose that they need. So uh, is that another aspect of uh, your healthcare platform that you'd like to see addressed uh, if you were elected to Congress? 
Absolutely. Well, it's, and this is another thing I say is that I never promise things that are impossible. I, right. I promise things that have been done that have shown that they can work and that, you know, they may not always be the easiest thing to do, but they, they always can be done. California recently showed us that uh, a state can take control of their insulin production because if the, if the private sector isn't willing to, to, to do it at a reasonable cost, then, uh, then you know, by all means, let the public sector take control over it because it, can, it because it can be done. Prescriptions are as much a part of healthcare as anything else. You know, as someone who you know has my own prescriptions, it's it, one of the struggles that I have sometimes is that uh, you know if if I run out, you know that that day, and I tried to go uh, get in, get a prescription filled, and then I've got uh, insurance issues or, or things like that. And all of a sudden I'm off my prescription for a few days. Well, that's just, that sets me back, you know, you know, a ton. So right. having that stability of knowing that your prescriptions are covered, your insulin is covered that, uh, you know, none of this stuff is free and none of us expect it to be free, but we expect it to be free at the point of service. We expect that stability. And, uh, believe that we as the United States and Eastern Kentucky deserve that. Um, so absolutely prescriptions, insulin, things like that are, are integral to any sort of Medicare for all system. And I would, I would fully support that. Right. Could you talk more on your plan to make sure that folks in Eastern Kentucky have access to, to clean, to clean drinking water? I know that that is, you know, that's something like you were saying in, in 2022 in uh, the wealthiest country in the history of the world, the issue of folks being able to access clean drinking water should not be an issue at all, but unfortunately it is. And you mentioned Jackson, Mississippi, who are the folks there are just undergoing a, a an unimaginable uh, situation where, you know, I've seen photos posted on social media where folks are running water out of their tap and it's black. It looks like oil almost. And uh, yeah, you're, you're you, not drinking that. You, no, you just, you can't. No, not at all. And, you know, there are countless communities in Eastern Kentucky who have been facing that same exact almost issue for years now. And there just has not seemed to be any real uh, federal intervention by our elected representatives at the federal level for our state and our region to address that. And so if you'd like to talk about that, go right ahead. Yeah, I uh, first want to say is that I don't want to talk too negatively about my opponent because people can look up his record. But I will say that when the uh, the big accident that a lot of Eastern Kentucky water problems can directly uh, be connected to happened in, I believe, 2000, uh, you know, a slurry spill. Um, my opponent had been in office for 20 years at that point. Right. Uh, if I had been in office for 20 years and had built up uh, a great reputation and, and all these favors and everything else, I would have uh, cashed in every single one of those favors I possibly could to make sure that my people had clean drinking water and that it wasn't a problem 20 years on from that. So uh, I think that that's a, a, a something that shouldn't be overlooked. Right. Um, but as, as far as uh, what I would do is I would say, look, it's the responsibility of, of if you want it to be the state government or federal government, but it's the responsibility of someone and it's the responsibility of our elected officials to make sure that the people have access to clean drinking water yes. as much as they have access to roads or as much as they have access to, uh, you, you know, Internet access. Now it's it's, you know, if we must take it upon ourselves. We must make the government responsible for uh, making sure that there's enough pipes, there's enough cl clean pipes, that they're not leaking, that everyone has access to clean water. So I would make that incumbent upon the federal government, uh, 
you know, to basically say, if we don't have access to clean drinking water, then it's your responsibility and, you know, as the government and you need to fix this. Um, I think that that would, uh, I think instead of relying on different private forces that are scattered and in, in different uh, agencies, um, make it very simple and make it very, uh, make, you know, make it a clean bill basically. Right. Um, so that's kind of what my approach to that issue is. Right. And I, I'm in complete agreement with you there. You know, uh, so many of the things that we've been talking about, whether it's healthcare or access to clean drinking water or whether it's something like uh, like you just mentioned, uh, access to a, a, a stable infrastructure. You know, these are things that not only do we depend on to serve that because we depend on them in many ways to just carry out our daily lives. Uh, it's the federal government's obligation uh, to make sure that those things are accessible and of high quality and do not hamper us from enjoying other things so that we don't have to pay so much for health care that we can't afford to buy food, for example. So I'm in complete agreement with you there. And- yeah, and I just uh, – sorry, but I just wanted to say we already expect that if if a uh, foreign adversary – uh, invaded part of our country, we would we would be very mad at the federal government and the and the military for uh, we would say you let this happen or, or right. something like that. But if we don't have clean drinking water, we don't seem to figure out who to point the blame to. Point the blame towards towards me as a member of the federal government. Point the blame towards you know that is something that we should take on our shoulders. Right, right, uh, absolutely. Um... I wanted to talk to you also about the the third aspect of your your campaign that you mentioned and that of a a federal jobs guarantee. And specifically, I I think this would be a good time to bring up the fact that uh, it's been noted that in our region of the state, specifically Eastern Kentucky, for our region and at a statewide level and certainly a national level, uh, folks who are running as Democrats often struggle because there is this perception that Democrats are not uh, attuned to the needs of folks who have worked in the in the coal industry, and you know that histor- historically, you know, when you look at the uh, uh, labor strikes in Harlan County mm-hmm. in the '30s, it was the Democratic Party that championed the rights of those workers to unionize and to fight for their basic rights as as human beings and as workers, and. You know, there certainly I would understand why folks would be apprehensive about voting for a, a a Democrat. But at the same time, when when we get down to it, what we're talking about, what you and I are talking about, is a a system wherein folks are guaranteed that they will not go hungry, that they won't go without care, that they won't go without water, that they won't go without infrastructure, and that, as you said in that third part of your your platform, that if a person is in need of a job and the private sector cannot fulfill that need. Then the government will fulfill that need. So uh, I uh, was wondering if maybe I'm trying to connect these two threats here, but uh, oh, yeah. you know, a, a lot has been with regard to um, as we try to transition more nationally towards a green infrastructure. You know, certainly that will hurt a lot of folks still working in the coal industry in Eastern Kentucky. And I think that one aspect of this that a lot of folks running on the Democratic ticket have not emphasized enough is that we should be guaranteeing that for every person who may be adversely affected in their employment in the fossil fuel industry, whether it's coal or, or what have you, the federal government will guarantee a job of at least comparable pay, if not better, to the one that that person has lost in, in the fossil fuel industry. So it, it, do you consider that to be an important part of this federal jobs guarantee for specifically Eastern Kentucky? 
Absolutely. I think that uh, a lot of times, like you said, Democrats have struggled with this issue, especially in a place like Eastern Kentucky, where the main kind of driving force and multiplier of of, of jobs, because it's not just the coal jobs, it's the support jobs right. that go with the coal jobs and the stability with that. Uh, for an industry that inherently is 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 damaging to the to community, so how do you how do you deal with that? I think you have to you it, in like accounting, it's you have to get both sides of the issue. So right. in, in one sense, it's like there there may be uh, you know less direct coal jobs. Well, you know, first of all, the private coal companies have done a good job of slashing coal jobs themselves. But um, you know, in order for that to be palatable in a way you also have to say look in place of this here is what you will get something if something is taken away right so you can't just say that you know when hillary clinton uh said that you know we're going to put the miners out of work or, or something that was terrible right. messaging right uh you know but you need to say is like look there's a there's something here that we needs to be done uh it's kind of inevitable we can dole that pain as much as possible and give you something in return right um so ha- and i think one of the other things that uh sometimes democrats struggle with uh even the ones who uh ostensibly kind of are supporting a more entrepreneurial spirit is that they kind of expect a place like eastern kentucky to have a positive return on investment uh you know, as quickly as possible. And that's just not the case, you know, right. uh, you know, just the way that Eastern Kentucky is, it's got a lot of, it's got wonderful people. It's got wonderful resources, but at the end of the day, it's not going to give this, uh, this business or this industry, a immediate return on investment, but you just have to come in expecting that. And that's where like things of my, that I also talk about where it comes to like education for free. Right. If we want to keep young people in the area, we have to say, you don't have to go, uh, across state lines or out of the region in order to get a good education, in order to get an education that's not going to put you in so much debt. You know, uh, right. all of these parts come into play to say that, look, we're not expecting a, a profitable return on investment in the next five years. But that's OK, because the because the people in the area are gaining education, gaining career experience, gaining this and that, have a good, uh, good livelihood, can raise a family. Um, those are kind of uh, points that I feel help show a a positive community or community that's doing well not necessarily if the uh if the number on the balance sheet uh is as high as it possibly can be so that's kind of my approach to uh jobs and uh the economic uh you know uh future of the region right it's it's like you said it's going to take a long-term investments in uh infrastructure uh, physical infrastructure and and social infrastructure access to uh, roads and bridges and and clean drinking water, but also access to things like internet and and education and healthcare. It's going to take uh, a lot of investment, and it's going to it's going to take some time for you know a region that has been underserved for a very long time to be able to uh, start rebounding, so to speak. It's not going to be an overnight process, and and I think that that's an important aspect of it that that we need to remember. And I I think that. I suspect that that is the reason why a lot of the resources that could be going to Eastern Kentucky right now to help folks with access to healthcare and infrastructure and jobs and education has not been as forthcoming as we, you know, as as it needed to have been and continues as it needs to be now is because, you know, a lot of the people who control those resources at, you know, a federal level or or what have you have seen, well, you know, it's not going to be an overnight success or it's not going to be uh, as quickly 
uh, as we'd like it to be before we start seeing returns on this. So we're not just going to invest in it anyway. When that's the exact opposite reaction that you need to to have, uh, you know, especially with a country as big as we are, we have different regions with different needs who uh, with folks who are coming from different walks of life. And so there's not going to be a one size it's all issue or a uh, uh, resolution to these issues. Uh, we're going to have to, you know, tailor it to, to regions specifically and different communities. And we're going to have to stay invested in these regions and in these people for them to not only most importantly, be able to advance their lives and their um, standard of living, but for, you know, folks in historically underserved regions like Eastern Kentucky and comparable regions throughout Appalachia and throughout the country to know that they're, well-being is of paramount importance to their government at every level. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. And that was the driving force behind the New Deal is that government can do good things on behalf of people. And and I think that that is a spirit that is very much present in your campaign and in these issues that you've been talking about. And so I, I think that all of these aspects that we talked about can be, you know, life-changing for folks in, in Eastern Kentucky in, in so many ways. And, um, I, I think that you are a very strong candidate in that respect, and I, I think that our region would be well served by having you in Congress. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And you know, like you said, the, this this country is big, and uh, you know, Kentucky still gets ninety percent of its energy from coal. So that means that you know, uh, or ninety percent of its electricity from coal. So that means that you know, coal isn't going to go away tomorrow. Right. But if we uh, if we can tailor a environmentally healthy plan to a place like Kentucky, it's going to look different than a place like California. Right. But the overall message should be, we should all be in this together and we will make this process uh, as easy as we can, we can on people. And we're going to give you added benefits for, you know, being a part of this and going through this, uh, you know, a, you know, a big project like this together. And so that's, again, I, I like to say sometimes that policies does not equal ideology. Right. Uh, you can have, Two sides uh, of, you know, two political parties can have people who agree on the same policy, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're aligned on their vision of the country. Um, So my vision of the country is I want people to be as stable as possible and be as free as possible. And that means making sure that their health care, their environment and their jobs are are, are covered so they can make those decisions for them and their family that, uh, that, that they would like to and would make them, you know, make them happy and make their communities happy. Absolutely. And, you know, you touched on a, on an important aspect of this and that, you know, one of the reasons why it's so important to talk about issues of environmental conservation is that, you know, it's it's not just an economic issue, but the fact of the matter is, is that if we don't care for the environment that we have, then we're not going to be able to inhabit it ourselves and the generations after us will not be able to inhabit it as we have. And so, you know, that the issue of economic uh, viability and environmental sustainability are often, I think, portrayed as being contradictory to each other, and you can't have a good economy and good environmental policy. But as you and I have been discussing, it's clear that you can have both. And mm-hmm. you know, like like you have been saying, the uh, centerpiece of those po- of good economic policy and good environmental policy is the a focus on the people who live in those regions and in these communities. And in places like Eastern Kentucky, where, as you said, a lot of folks are still dependent on uh, the coal industry. It's important to to remember that, you know, that is a legitimate need that they have. And so they should not be left out whatsoever as we transition to a, a cleaner uh, economy. 
uh, in a cleaner energy system, we have to make sure that those folks are taken care of. And, and, you know, like you said, it'll be a, a long-term deal. It's not going to happen overnight, but that it's, it's important not only so that folks can have good jobs and continue to earn the high wages and get the good benefits that they deserve, but also that we can take care of our environment for ourselves and for the, the people to come after us. Right. Uh, you know, exactly what you said, you know, if, if the balance sheet says that uh, Eastern Kentucky uh, has uh, a, a billion dollars less or something than it than it would have. But uh, for that number on the balance sheet, people were able to to go fishing and camping and, you know, to go outside and their their water's clean. Uh, you know, it's like you just have to ask yourself, is that a trade off that that that's worth it? You know, there's always going to be you know, you need to keep an eye on economic uh you know, economic uh, swings and, and things like that. You right. want your, you know, you, you want the community to do well that way. But uh, if for that, the cost is more black lung, uh, higher cancer rates, higher rates of diabetes, is, is that worth it? There's always trade-offs to everything. So, you know, figure out what your elected officials and figure out what your leaders are willing to trade off. Right. Absolutely. Um Connor, I, I can't thank you enough for agreeing to be on uh, the podcast today, and I've enjoyed talking to you and getting to know you. Um, I would like to give you uh, these next few minutes, if there's anything you'd like to say in closing to the folks listening, uh, especially you know those in Eastern Kentucky who will have a chance to uh, vote for you this November, uh, anything you'd like to say to, to close us out, uh, go right ahead. Well, first of all, again, thank you for having me on. This, is, this has been wonderful, and it's wonderful to see uh, – you know, it's it's. I think it's good for people outside of Eastern Kentucky to see that there's people in Eastern Kentucky who care about the issues. Uh, you and your audience, you know, aren't aren't ignorant. <laughs> you know, you right, know what's right. going on in the world. I think that's important. Uh, the other thing is that you know, as people in Eastern Kentucky know, my opponent has been in office for a very long time, and a lot of times people think it's it's useless or hopeless or, uh, you know, he's just too big and too powerful. But, um. You know, if if you're in the race, you can you can win the you can win the race. And I think that uh, again, I'm on I'm benefiting from the from the idea that my ideas are good. Right. So, so that so no matter how much you know money my opponent has or how much experience he has, uh, I've got the benef- added benefit of knowing that I've got good ideas and that I'm willing to work for the people uh, of Eastern Kentucky. And if people want to check check out more about me, uh, my website is Connor C O N O R for the number four Kentucky.com. And then I'm also active on, uh, on, on Twitter and Facebook, but uh, yeah, send me a message. You know, I, I, I want to meet as many people as I possibly can the rest of this election. And, uh, and, and I'm doing this because I, I believe that uh, I believe in the people of Eastern Kentucky. Right. And uh, certainly wish you the best of luck in, in this race. Uh, I'm uh, looking forward to seeing your career, uh, regardless of what happens in November, I'm looking forward to see you to continue to advocate for the region, as I know you will. Uh, thank you so much for uh, speaking with me today about these issues affecting folks in our in our region and, and across uh, Appalachia itself. Uh, Connor, thank you very much. Thank you so much, DJ. Well, y'all, thank you so much for tuning in for this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. And thank you guys for everything that you do to support the podcast in whatever way that you do. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you, so thank you. If you like that music that you're listening to in the background, that is a piece called In the Sweet By and By by a great artist named Zechariah Hickman. 
and you can find him on YouTube. Be sure to check his channel out. Be sure to follow the podcast on social media for all of the updates going forward. It's at AppFiresides on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Make sure to join us next week for another installment of our Sights to See and Places to Be in Appalachia series. And be sure to join us the following week for another full-length episode. But until then, stay safe, stay healthy, love your neighbor, and do good things. Catch you guys next time.